3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. A full house today. Full house. Nice to be sitting in the studio with all four of us here together. Yeah. So we've got Alice in the studio today. I'm Claudia. I'm Patty. And I'm Ella. Woo! And it's Wednesday. The day after budget day. Yeah. So day after Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure lots of uh, Australians are looking at the budget and seeing how it affects their different interests. Yeah, lots of discussion on aged care and women's issues and job Mm -hmm. opportunities. Yeah, very different from the budget we saw six months ago. But yeah, something we'll want to look into in the coming weeks, I think. Definitely. I'm looking forward to uh, hear what the Unemployed Workers Fight Back show that's on, on Friday afternoons makes of it. They always have the fantastic economic analysis through the modern monetary theory lens. Yeah, I think we'll be unpacking this for the next few weeks, hearing uh, how the different sectors are being affected. But today's show is going to have a, a different uh, focus we're going to be presenting a few stories from the, the subcontinent. Alice and I uh, have both have guests uh, that we'll be speaking to to give us a picture of how the COVID uh, pandemic, especially the second wave, is affecting people in India and uh, the family members back in Australia. Uh, I'll be talking to the co-founder of the Yatra Foundation, Ravi Savari Ryan at 10 past 7 uh, and the Yatra Foundation supports three schools in rural India so we'll be able to get a snapshot of um, an on the ground picture of how the students and teachers the communities there are being affected and how they're managing to continue their education and Alice uh, who yeah. are you speaking with? I'm going to at eight, uh, 7.45 sorry I'm going to speak to Dr Nisha Cott um, and she's a doctor in Australia, but has people on the ground in India and is very in tune with what's happening there. So we're going to just talk to her a little bit about what is going on at the moment, um, how how is it for the community that she knows, and also what what are we seeing in Australia, and are we seeing support, are we seeing grassroots support, and how can we help? So yeah, that's at seven forty five. Uh, at 7.30, we're going to be looking more locally, uh, talking to Chris O'Neill from Sunbury Against Toxic Soil. There's a plan to dump millions of tonnes of toxic soil in the bullet tip, and the local residents are not happy about that. So it's going to be fantastic to hear from Chris about that topic. And I'm going to finish up the show on a lighter note. I'm speaking with Maddie from the New International Bookshop, uh, Melbourne's Radical Bookshop. So they're friends of 3CR's Radical Radio. Um, and supporters of our breakfast show. So we're going to be talking about upcoming events at NIBS, uh, including their new book club. And I'll also be uh, bringing another story from uh, the subcontinent. We'll be talking with one of the members from the Tamil Refugee Council, Sathya Savendram. Uh, they're holding an event, a rally this Sunday. Uh, it's to mark the um, major massacre that occurred during the civil war in Sri Lanka in 2009 and uh, the ongoing demands that the Tamil community are making both for the Australian government and uh, 
the government back in Sri Lanka to uh, to protect and make uh, the world safe for Tamil people. Well, it's an action-packed show this morning. Uh, let's start off things with a song. This is the breakfast classic, Better in Black, Thelma Palm. Add your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of community-powered radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon, community-powered radio. Oh, oh. 
Thursday, the 20th of May, Wyndham Humanitarian Network is holding a free Bring Your Bills Day in Wyndham Vale. Members of the community who have had questions about bills or debts can attend the event to speak to lawyers, financial counsellors, ombudsman schemes and other community organisations. The event will run from 11.30am to 7.30pm on Thursday the 20th of May at the Warangal Darung Centre at 19 Communal Road, Wyndham Vale. Wyndham Vale Humanitarian Network is a 3CR supporter. Our first guest this morning is Melbourne doctor Ravi Savadi Ryan. He's the co-founder of the Yatra Foundation Australia, a non-government, not-for-profit organisation based here in Australia. And the organisation provides education to 1,100 disadvantaged children in rural India. Ravi's here to tell us how these communities have been affected by the pandemic, particularly the current second wave crisis, and what they are doing to manage. Welcome, Ravi. Hi, Claudia. Thanks very much, and thanks for having me on your program. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you for uh, making time. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the extremely sad and difficult situation in India at the current time, both for the people there and those who were separated from loved ones here in Australia. Thanks very much, Claudia. Yes, it has been a, a very difficult time, and I think COVID, unfortunately, has... Um, has really shone a light on the inequity of um, the world we live in, where some countries are arguing over the nuances of the best vaccine to receive, and and other countries um, um, would just um, would are just begging that any vaccine could be available in their country. And I think in India it's the same that's happened. So that, uh, as you said in your introduction, our schools um, target the most disadvantaged children, usually living in rural India, whose parents are usually poor farmers or labourers who earn less than two dollars a day and whose children would be out working with them um, if it wasn't for our schools. And unfortunately, COVID um, has hit these communities the hardest because these communities are the ones um, that have the least uh, access to resources. Uh, and ironically, they're the ones with the most um, need for resources, whether that be health resources or education resources. I'm going to um, ask you a little bit more about the specific ways the communities have been affected from the pa pandemic. But before we do that, can you give listeners some background on the three schools you work with in India and how they were operating before COVID hit? Sure. So Yatra Foundation, as you said, was started by um, four of us, um, Sanjay and Renu uh, and Sophie, my wife, and myself in, in 2007. And really it just came from the need that... Um, um, we're a very personalised organisation and we found that we were independently supporting a small number of children and we found that a small money could actually pay for their educational needs. So given the fact we helped a few children, we've decided to see whether we could do a bit more in a structured way. And as you said, we're now helping 1,100 children. We have three areas, three schools. Um, we have a school in the north of India in Rajasthan on a beautiful tiger reserve, um, which is a very much a rural school that we've built. Um, we have then, we have... Um, um, uh, a series of early resource learning centres near Udaipur in Rajasthan. Each school is a local school that's a bridging school that teaches children who would otherwise be out of school so that they can then transition to government schools. It teaches them basic literacy and numeracy um, and we've supported over 3,000 children through that program. And then in the very south of India, in my home state in Tamil Nadu, 
Um, we have another school um, that's an extremely um, well-resourced school um, that uses the latest technology and computer resources. And so, really, we have um, schools in, in the north and the south the overall arching aim is to provide a quality education um, to those children who otherwise would probably not be at school so they can have increased opportunities. So with your schools and programs in different regions of India, I expect that the way in which they were impacted was was different. Um, Can you give us some idea of some of the ways the pandemic changed things for the communities, uh, both the teachers and the, the students? Sure. So we just recently, we've been working very hard with our partners to, to, to provide COVID relief. And uh, one of our partners, Seva Mandia, who we have the early resource centres from, they had to, with India's lockdown, as you know, in the first wave, and now with various other lockdowns, there's no face-to-face teaching of these students anymore. And really what's happened is we've had to integrate education with actual survival of the community. So the things that we're doing in combination with our partners is providing education and hygiene kits um, to people about what is coronavirus, about basic personal protection, about basic hy- um, hygiene. Teaching has now gone um, to telephone teaching and where people have um, tablet phones um, through those devices. As you can imagine, we can't do distance learning like we do here in Australia, but the teachers are involved with the parents, creating a dialogue with the students and taking them through um, their lessons as best they can. Um, There's also virtual online capacity buildings of our teachers because many of our teachers are actually drawn from the communities that the children come from and often the schools um, are actually in the teacher's house um, because we're trying to keep things local so that children don't have to travel large distances to get to a government school. Um, And again, we're also helping um, uh, the farmers and the community to sell their produce um, to try and because uh, many of these farmers um, weren't able to sell their produce, weren't able to travel anywhere to sell their produce, so basically had no income. So they're the kind of community efforts that we're doing, um, providing relief, providing education and, and providing healthcare advice um, where COVID has impacted in these communities. And how have the children responded to all of this? Have they been, you know, extremely shaken? Are they been showing huge resilience? Can you give us some examples of the different ways the students are experiencing this? Well, I think that um, one of the things that we we have um, been inspired by is that, you know, if you give a child an opportunity for education, they have a great thirst for it. So we've um, been very surprised and very happy that the children have been very keen to continue their learning. Initially, before the outbreak got worse, there were some group teaching in the villages. That's had to be suspended with this second wave. But we've found in our visits to India, when we go and visit the schools, which we try and do regularly, we've found the children to, even though they might be poor and living in some of the most inaccessible parts of the world, they're just happy kids running around and they have a great thirst for education. And so that's fantastic. And some of these children had previously had to walk two or three kilometres to get to work, uh, to get to school, and, and actually uh, um, sometimes have not been safe um, in that. So um, they're just very thirsty to, to learn. And so we've been constantly inspired by that. What we're trying to do is to, to provide with them with at least some impetus for learning um, during these very tough times. That's fantastic to hear. The media portrayal of the situation in India is very focused on um, the sort of activity around hospitals and people not being able to access oxygen and so forth. Um, the picture you're painting is seems to be different to that. Is there sort of a sense of chaos in the areas that the schools and students are learning? 
Oh, no, things, no, no, I think that there is, that the, the things that are being portrayed are real in India. We are, we are getting um, first-hand reports from the teachers and from all of our community um, support workers that things are very, very bad in India um, and um, it has affected everyone. And as I said, it really has disproportionately affected those with the least access to resources um, because many of the rural um, communities um, are getting sick and possibly dying without them being registered 30% of in people in India die without a death certificate. So I, I think that the situation is actually worse and that the communities that are poorest um, bear the brunt of it. We've seen that all around the world, whether it be in Brazil or whether it be in India. Um, and so I think things are very, very bad. Um, and um, I guess a lot of the cameras don't have access to these very remote areas where our children live. But unfortunately, COVID has penetrated every part of India. Mm. Extremely sad. And the Yatra community, as you've said, is an incredibly close group um, working directly with um, the partners that you have in India. And you previously used to travel regularly to check in with the schools and also with your medical uh, background doing physical checks on the children and Sophie doing dental checks and so forth. How's it felt to be confined in Australia and unable to travel when your community's in, tr in crisis? Oh, look, it's been very disempowering, very frustrating. Um, we have maintained regular contact with our partners, but obviously, um, you know, um, we feel, you know, Sanjay Renu and myself and Sophie have a very strong connection with India. Three of us are of Indian origin. So obviously we feel very much for this. And I guess um, this pandemic has, is, it has actually just emphasised the reason why we started these um, schools, because, you know, right to access to education and healthcare should be a basic human right. But um, there are millions and millions of people in India around the world who don't have those rights. Um, and they are the people who need them the most. They have the least access to education. They have the least access to health. And we believe that that actually perpetuates the cycle of poverty that keeps them in their situation. So, you know, I think it's really, it's, um, it's dismayed us, but it's also um, made us resolved that, um, you know, we will continue this work. We'll continue to fund the schools. We're continuing to make sure the teachers are getting paid um, in our own uh, in our own JobKeeper scheme so that they will not leave. They'll continue to teach the children remotely and they'll continue to have an income themselves. Um, so I think it's been a, a powerful lesson, but it's also really made us even more determined to continue this work. Tested the commitment, which uh, we know is so strong with you, Yatra crew. Um, so we'll come to your appeal um, shortly, but I just wanted to also ask your views on the Australian government's policies and the announcement, uh, how you felt when it announced the cancellation of flights from India and the uh, the penalties? Yeah, look, I think I'd, I'd probably speak, well, I don't know, I'd probably speak for a lot of Australia in, in saying that uh, certainly as an Australian citizen, I, I did not agree with that. I think that was policy on the run. I think the government's walking back from that a little bit. I would prefer to see rather than bans and punitive measures, I'd prefer to see us strengthen our um, quarantine facilities and strengthen um, those types of things based on science and increase the, the training and education of the people who are, are staffing our quarantine facilities um, so that really that we need to bring our citizens home um, and then keep the community safe by good quarantine and good health. Um, I think that bans are, are quite ridiculous and especially, you know, I found it quite ironic that, um, you know, you have people that don't have access to, um, to means um, not being able to leave India yet all of the 40 uh, Australian cricketers and their entourage were flown immediately to the Maldives. So, look, I think that <laughs> I, I think that these rules uh, and bans and punishments tend to affect 
those that um, are least able to afford them and are most vulnerable. So I certainly um, um, did not think that was the best policy. And how can listeners provide support to Yatra or get involved with the, the work that you do? Can you tell us about your current appeal and uh, the other ways so, that so, people can get involved? Yes, yeah, so Yatra, Y-A-T-R-A, just means journey. We're all on a journey and we'd like to help these children on their educational journey. And people can go to our website, which is yatrafoundation.org, um, one word, yatrafoundation.org, and um, they can read about what we're doing. And um, if they feel that... Um, uh, that it resonates with them, please feel free to donate. Uh, and especially at the moment, we are looking for COVID relief donations so that not only can the children get education um, in this time, but we also we can rally around the communities to keep them safe, to educate them against COVID and to help them find, um, to prevent COVID. And if they do are affected by COVID, to actually get health care um, as well. So they can click on our website. I, I think that you might be able to put it up on your, your um, Instagram feed after, after the program. Um, and our website, you can click and donate. Um, every cent donated by individual donors goes directly to our projects. We have no overhead costs, which is um, um, marked as, as an unusual charity, um, and we are looking um, for funds because this last year, as you can imagine, we've not had the ability to actually host a fundraiser. Yeah, of course, and the children you're educating hold the, the future for change in, in India as well, so it's not just about their journey, it's it's what they can pass on to their communities and how they can uh, help their communities move forward. That's right. We hope that we are educating the next, um, you know, that the, some of the children going to, to our schools will be the next leaders of mm. countries like India, um, which is wonderful because we, we think that, um, you know, we have um, great opportunity for change and, and that can be a transformative and generational change and that one day um, we won't need the kindness of foreigners like Australians and to support Indian education. We hope that that will be something that the Indian community and the Indian government and the Indian public will be able to do themselves. Yeah, and you've, you've even, uh, with one of your schools, uh, it's become a, a role model for the Indian uh, school system, hasn't it? So there's been already some... Yes, some, our schools uh, have become a kind of resource centre for some of the government schools who are actually using our models of education and our partners' models of education. So we're really leveraging that effect. So although we may only directly... Um, we only directly have 1,100 or so children in our schools, we hope that our effect is, is much greater than that and probably, hopefully, tens of thousands. Well, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. It's been fantastic to hear about your huge commitment to the children and the schools that you're supporting and the greater vision for for change in uh, India as well as the -the on-the-ground perspective on how they're coping through this difficult time. Thanks for having me on this program, Claudia, and thank you for being a lifelong supporter of our foundation with your family. Thanks, Ravi. And uh, you can donate to the education of Yatra students, as Ravi said, by going on to the Yatra Foundation's website. That's Yatra, Y-A-T-R-A, foundation.org. And uh, you'll see all the buttons to press there and lots of really great information on what Yatra's doing. Um, that was a really great interview, Claudia. It uh, reminds us, you know, how, how lucky we are in Australia at the mm. moment and and how ongoing the COVID situation is. And on that note, there has been a positive uh, case in the last 24 hours in Victoria. A wallet man tested positive. Uh, They assume at the moment that he uh, contracted COVID in 
uh, in Adelaide in hotel quarantine. Um, and there is a list of uh, contact sites on the VicGovDH website that you can check if you... Uh, and if you have attended any of those places, you'll need to self-isolate. Here's Better Things by Kian.
we've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Next up on 3CR Breakfast, we're going to talk to Chris O'Neill from Sunbury Against Toxic Soil about plans to dump millions of tonnes of toxic soil in the Buller Tip. Thank you for joining us this morning, Chris. Thank you very much. Uh, could you start by telling us what toxic soil is and where all this dirt is coming from? Yeah, so this, uh, this soil is all going to come from the Westgate Tunnel Project. Uh, obviously, we're digging that through some of Melbourne's most toxic uh, ground over there in the western suburbs. Uh, and the, the soil itself is uh, is contaminated with uh, more than 60 uh, different contaminants, but one of those main contaminants is uh, PFAS. And PFAS is considered uh, especially uh, dangerous uh, because of its uh, its reaction on the body. It's a, it's a cancer-causing uh, contaminant. Oh, no. And, and I understand the Environment Protection Authority has come out and given this idea the green light. But one thing that rings alarm bells for me is that the soil hasn't really been tested, so it's impossible to know what kind of damage it could do. Uh, what are your fears for the community? Yeah, so you, you raise a really good point there that, uh, that obviously the soil hasn't been tested. So we're going to see uh, 465 truckloads or 11,000 cubic metres a day uh, when the tunnels are full production. Uh, coming down into into our community, uh, it will be untested, uh, and obviously we won't know what's in there until it gets to a point uh, where it's at the landfill site. Uh, once it arrives at the landfill site, it, it will obviously be tested, but it will sit there drying and evaporating the water for about twenty one days um, between the point where it's uh, it's dropped off and and finally tested. Uh, my concern for my community is obviously that we. We won't know what's in that soil, so the testing results are going to be owned by a private company. Uh, they're not going to be owned by the government, so we really have no oversight uh, over what those testing results will be. Uh, and obviously, once it's on uh, a private uh, a private property, uh, which it would be at the landfill site, we have no uh, ability to see if what was delivered is what was tested or if other soil has not been mixed in uh, with uh, with what was disposed of uh, or delivered to site. Ah, I see. And also, also you mentioned uh, the trucks. That's that's another issue, sort of an ancillary issue to the uh, major issue of the soil. You're going to have these trucks going 24-7 through the community, and I understand over a heritage-listed bridge as well. Yeah, so the, uh, the trucks that I mentioned there before, so we're going to have... Uh, 865 trucks a day that will be travelling uh, backwards and forwards between uh, the pivot site, which is over in uh, over in Western Melbourne, when the tunnel portal comes out, 
they'll be travelling through Buller uh, behind Melbourne Airport uh, and as close as 10 metres to, to homes. Uh, those trucks will travel 24-7. Uh, they will not stop from the moment the tunnel boring machine starts. They will not stop. Uh, they cannot be stopped because the tunnel boring machine cannot be stopped. Um, and they will run there for uh, for anywhere up to 18 to 24 months. Uh, I personally, I can't imagine what that would be like for the Buller residents, having noisy, dirty, soil-carrying trucks uh, ricketing along a, a road right out the front of your house for the next 24 months. That must be... Uh, that must be really painful for them. Uh, so that's, that's why we're making so much of a fuss about it. Yeah, and it's impossible to know as well what, the, what it's going to do to the air quality. Um, and on and on on that note, the, the dump is right next to Emu Creek. Is that right? Uh, the dump is uh, it's actually really interesting. Yes, it is right next to Emu Creek. Uh, we've measured it's about 29 metres from, from Emu Creek. Uh, but more, more, more concerning as, as well to that, so Emu Creek is is a really important part of our uh, creek and river system. So Emu Creek feeds into the, the upper Maribyrnong uh, River, which obviously then feeds down into Port Phillip Bay. Uh, it runs behind the airport, so there is obviously some contamination in that river uh, already. More concerning to me than, than the river, though, is that we've just had the minister in the past couple of years uh, approve the Sunbury South uh, planning uh, precinct structure plan uh, which is 20,000 new homes. Uh, and those new homes will be within 200 metres of this dump site. Yeah, so it... you've, you've now got 20,000 new homes that are starting to be built right next to this toxic dump. And, and this toxic dump is not going to be small. This is going to potentially be Australia's biggest toxic dump. It's just bizarre. It's like, it's like there was no planning done at all. Uh, but it's been great to see your concerted community effort organising against the dumping. Uh, have you found much support from the local government or any reaction at all? You know, I'll, I'll certainly tip my hat to, to Hume City Council. They've uh, uh, they, they've been on board since, uh, since the start. It's uh, certainly been a mission for, for all of us. So local government is definitely there. Uh, our... our uh, Hume City Council is uh, is taking this to the Supreme Court. They're taking the minister's decision to the Supreme Court, and uh, just earlier this week they passed a motion to uh, seek some uh, advice around injunctive relief or an injunction on transurban uh, from signing a contract. Uh, we're not sure how that one will go. Uh, in regards to uh, our local member uh, of Parliament, uh, we've we've received absolutely no support, no uh, no backing. Uh, from him at all, uh, and I have a feeling that is because he uh, is part of the party that is uh, is building the tunnel. Uh, but his community feels very, very let down um, by by that ignorance to the to the issue. Uh, he's he's not even uh, nowadays responding to emails from people. Oh, typical. So you've organised some great local events so far. Uh, could you tell us about what you've got planned on the twentieth of May? Yeah, so uh, we, we decided uh, if they're not going to listen to us, that, uh, that we'll take the message to them. Uh, so we're going to take our message to the Steps of State Parliament on the 20th of May, 10.30 in the morning. So this is a, a joint a- activity between us and Bacchus Marsh, which is another one of the proposed dumping sites as well. Uh, and uh, we're going to take the message to them on their most important state government day, which is the Victorian Budget Day. So we know they'll There'll be lots of media and lots of cameras around and uh, 
we certainly hope that uh, we can get our message uh, get our message out there in support of of our community uh, and uh, and make the politicians know that hey, there's real people involved here. There's there's real communities, and uh, you know, steamrolling through them with with planning amendments and changes to EPA legislation and and all those other things that they've done. It's just it's just not acceptable. Uh, so we'll, we'll take our message to them and and make a bit of noise on their proudest of days. Good on you, Chris, and good good on you for uh, choosing uh, Budget Day. I think that's a really smart decision. For people who can't attend, uh, who can they petition? Who can they call up, email to try and put a stop to this? Well, they can certainly uh, they can certainly contact their local member of parliament. Uh, obviously, we need to engage as many people as as possible. So I recommend that everyone checks who their local member of parliament is and send them a simple email just saying that you do not support toxic soil. Uh, being dumped in any community. Um, there are recommended solutions that the government could have implemented. They haven't. Uh, so writing to your local member is is very important. Write to your local council members. Uh, it's amazing how much the councils out here have been supporting uh, everyone, and that's not just in our district, that's in every district. Uh, and uh, in relation to petition, we, we, we don't have one open at the moment because that was done very early on uh, in our phase. We, we were close to 3,500 signatures on a tabled parliament petition. Uh, so, you know, if, if you can't attempt, I think the best thing that you can do is call and speak up and, and, and talk to your local par- parliamentarian and, and local council member. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Chris. No worries. Thanks very much for the time. Really appreciate it. And we'll uh, put all the information related to this issue on our 3CR website, uh, along with the podcast of this episode. And uh, any of the uh, parliamentarians involved will put their emails up there so that you can get in touch. Now, here's Coin Laundry by Lisa Mitchell.
speak to Dr Nisha Cott from the Federal Council member a Federal Council member sorry of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetrician and Gynecology. Dr Nisha Cott is speaking with us today about the COVID-19 crisis in India and how we in Australia are responding. With over 23 million cases and 250,000 deaths, India is gasping for air and hospitals lack oxygen beds. Um, oxygen and beds, sorry, and experts have said infection rates could be even higher than predicted. Dr Nisha, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. And I know it's an impossible task, but is there any way that you can just sort of let us know how is it going on for India right now? Well, I think, as you said, it's an impossible task to describe what's happening in India. We all know what the official figures are. But uh, the unofficial figures could be three, four, five times higher. And we just don't have the information. You know, there have been some really intrepid journalists who have gone out and counted body bags and cremation fires and things like that. And that gives us some idea of how, how the scale of disaster is and how we are only getting to see a very small bit of it. And for us, that looks disastrous. So we can just imagine what five times that number might actually be like on the ground. And and why is it that we, we don't know quite the figure and, and the journalists are kind of going out there and counting the, the bodies themselves? It has to be said that there's a combination of kind of trying to suppress what really is happening, along with the fact that India doesn't have the capacity to test as widely as we have seen testing in Australia. And so a number of people get the infection and die from it without ever being tested and so never get counted in those numbers. And so that's the kind of double-edged sword of wanting to suppress the numbers plus not being able to test and so have accurate numbers just means that we don't get any idea of the scale of the problem. And do you have contact with people on the ground in India at the moment, the health workers and carers in India? Yes, definitely. So I have, first of all, family in India. My parents live in India and, of course, extended family as well. Uh, amongst the, that family, there are some healthcare workers, but also I myself graduated in India, so I'm still in touch with all of my classmates in India and so do get a sense of what's happening. My class of 200-odd uh, doctors is spread all across India now 
And so I get an idea of the scale of what's happening there. And what's like? What's life like for them right now? Life is... I, saying life is difficult sounds so... It just doesn't do it justice. Mm. Life really is tough because, one, they are worried about their own families and their own health. Two, they're worried about how to look after patients. I mean, as doctors, we want to do the best we can. We want to give our patients the best treatment possible, and that just isn't possible anymore in India. When you have a lack of oxygen and lack of beds, there's not much that a doctor can do without those sorts of basics. And so they are really facing a very difficult task on both accounts, caring mm. for their own and their themselves and caring for their patients. And how is it at the moment, I mean, having a family in India and for communities in Melbourne and in Australia who are desperate for their own family and friends that are there? It, again, it, you know, when the phone rings at any time of the day or night, your first thought is, Who's, who's ill and who needs help trying to find a bed, find someone who will look after them. And you spend hours trying to get in touch with the people you know who might be able to help, who themselves are struggling. They are not ac- able to access help, so they can't help you get help for your relatives and parents in India. So it, it's a harrowing time because, you know, most of us who are expats, said to our parents and our family and our siblings that, oh, we're just a flight away. Mm -hmm. If anything happens, we'll be there in no time at all. And now to be in a situation where actually we can't be there, we are completely helpless, is a very, very difficult place to be in. We are questioning all our choices. We are questioning all our decisions at this point. So it's tough. Yeah. And, I mean, despite... India being the biggest producer of COVID vaccines, there is a shortage in India. And I just wondered if you could speak to us a little bit about how that rollout of the vaccine is going and are they still exporting to other countries? So part of the reason why we don't have enough vaccines, despite being such a large manufacturer of vaccines, is because we have sent vaccines to countries all across the world without vaccinating our own. And I think there is a lesson there because most other countries have said, no, we'll do our own before we send anything anywhere. And India has been one of the few countries that has said, look, we'll share our vaccines with everyone. And now it is time for other countries to do the same thing and say, you know, actually, we have these stockpiles of vaccines sitting in our uh, fridges across the country. We will share them with you because ultimately we are not going to defeat this virus unless we share across borders and across communities. I think the one thing this pandemic has taught us is that this insular thinking of, you know, me and my own and within my own state borders or country's borders and we'll be safe, just won't work in the long term. We have to do this together. And, you know, India's vaccine rollout has restarted, but they need the vaccines to be able to do that. And vaccines like Rome, I guess, can't be manufactured in a day. Mm -hmm. And so the rest of the world needs to step up and help India out at this point. Have any countries um, stepped up yet? 
So the U.S. has recently said that they will at least waive the patents, and so it will be possible to share the technology and to be able to manufacture vaccines in various other countries. I mean, India already has the capacity to manufacture vaccines, but that is the first step of, you know, sharing the information, sharing the knowledge we have so that more people can manufacture the vaccines rather than it be left to the monopoly of three or four manufacturers. And I think that is a really good step in the right direction. Along with that, now we'd like to see more people share the vaccines that they are holding on to. Mm. And um, regarding um, isolation, like the lockdowns and the quarantines, on obviously the first round there was a quarantine in India, but do you think Prime Minister Modi will enforce a national one? I can't see any signs that that is about to happen in India, but that would be the right thing to do at this point. I think we need to make decisions based on public health rather than politics. I, you know, I've seen, we have all lived through the lockdown in Melbourne and in Victoria, but we have seen the results of it. We've seen how successful we've been. And in any country that has imposed the lockdowns has managed to, you know, conquer the crisis and get to the other side. And so I think at this point, decisions, really should be made based on public health and the advice of public health officials, not politics. Mm. And the travel ban should be lifted on Friday. Um, yes. And how, how do you feel, how, how did that feel, that criminalisation of travelling between these countries? And what do you think it says about our government? I, I've said this before and I will say it again, this whole episode of the travel ban, but not as much of the travel ban, more of the sort of criminal criminalization of people traveling, has made many, many Indians across Australia, so many Australians of Indian origin, mm-hmm. rethink about their decisions. Does our citizenship really mean anything? And this should be something that not just Australians of Indian origin should think about, but Australians of other origins should too, because ultimately we are a country of immigrants. And all of us, a vast majority of us, will have family overseas. Some of us will have given up our citizenship of other countries to accept Australian citizenship. But what does it actually stand for? And is there a second class of citizens that doesn't get the same rights that others do? It has really made the community question all of our decisions. And that's that's really a horrible place to be when you are already dealing with the fact that you have family overseas, you're trying to organize health care for them, and then you think, well, actually, my citizenship isn't equal to, say, somebody else's citizenship. And that, that leaves you feeling very hollow on the inside. Mm. And do you think it's especially hard for Indian-Australian citizens because they have to give up their Indian citizenship? Yes, you know, we have to all consciously make the decision of giving up citizenship of the country that we grew up in, the country that nurtured us, the country that provided us with opportunity and education to be able to get to the stage where we now are. Mm -hmm. So we voluntarily give that up to acquire citizenship of Australia, for example. And that, you know, we've done it because we feel like we want to contribute to the greater society in Australia because we live here. But this time with these decisions it has really made us rethink what what is the right decision in this situation and why is what what hap- what's happening in india a global concern 
It is a global concern because this virus is going to spread across the world with all of its mutants if we don't act together, if we don't vaccinate everyone. The whole way of how vaccination works is to vaccinate the maximum number of people. And we are now not insular. We have traveled across the world. We are one. And the only way we will conquer this is to do it together. The more the mutant strain spread across the world, the more people will be exposed to it, the more people will get sick and will die from it. And so unless we do this together, unless we vaccinate across the world as many people as we can, we are not going to get across this pandemic. And is there any way for people in Australia or in Melbourne specifically to support causes that are help that can help India right now? So one of the things that I would say is that on Saturday, the 15th of May, uh, along with a group of other Indian doc- uh, other Australian doctors of Indian origin, we have organised a vigil at the Flinders Street Amphitheatre in Federation Square from 4pm to 6pm. This is secular, it's non-political, it is non-partisan, it is just a way of coming together and showing solidarity with people across the world, but healthcare workers in India who are currently facing a huge crisis and Indians in general and Australians of Indian origin who are facing their own crisis. We don't want you to come and do anything. We don't want you to bring anything. We just want you to bring yourself, come and stand with us, show us that we all care for each other. There are lots and lots of charities that you can donate to. My only word of caution would be to find a charity that is reliable that actually makes a difference because you want to make sure that whatever you donate gets to the right place, to the right people at the right time. So I personally wouldn't recommend one charity over another, but I would say do your homework, ask people to find the charities that actually are doing really good work in India and are making a difference. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and we'll have the details of the vigil on Saturday on our Wednesday breakfast um, 3CR page so that our listeners can go there and check that out. Um, Yeah, Dr Nisha Cott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Dr Nisha Cott, an Australian-Indian doctor speaking to us about the um, COVID crisis in India right now and Australia's response. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.
September. Oh, I remember every time that I kiss your lips. The breeze is warm and the colors they wash the skyline. In my home, every night at Mindel Beach. Oh, 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 and I think how happy we must be. We're in a tiny boat, waiting on a settled sea. Our laughter chimes to the people on the beach. They've softened silhouettes so close to us, but out of reach. La la Our next guest is Dr. Sathya Thavendran, who will be talking to us about the Tamil Genocide Day rally this Sunday, May the 18th. A warning that this segment discusses genocide and human rights abuses. If this might be upsetting for you, you may wish to take a break for the next 15 minutes. May 18, Tamil Genocide Day, marks the day in 2009 when Sri Lankan government forces opened fire on thousands of Tamil people trapped on a strip of coastal land, killing a reported 40,000 civilians. The area was supposed to be a safe zone but became a site of atrocity. In the 26-year-old civil war between the Sri Lankan national government and the separatist political faction, up to 100,000 died and almost half a million people were displaced. Each year, Tamils around the world remember the May Massacre and call for recognition of the Ilam Tamils' rights to self-determination. In Australia, the Tamil Refugee Council is a grassroots organisation and will be holding rallies in both Melbourne and Sydney to recognise Tamil Genocide Day and demand action from the Australian Government. We have the group MC for the rally, Dr. Sathya Savendran, who's part of the Tamil diaspora living in Melbourne, and a doctor who's doing an internship at Eastern Health, here with us to talk about the event and the main agenda items. Welcome, Sathya. Thank you for having me, Claudia. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be involved with refugee advocacy? Yeah. Um, so I'm actually a part of the Tamil diaspora. Uh, my parents were uh, both fled Sri Lanka in um, early 1980 due to the ongoing warfare. And um, as a doctor, I believe it's important to advocate for refugee rights as well. And what sort of feelings are aroused in you today and as you prepare for the rally? Um, I guess feelings of... Uh, intense sadness for what's going on in the homeland at the moment and due to the past, but also um, feelings of anger and um, wanting to uh, stand up for what is right um, and wanting to lobby um, against the Australian government for their ongoing support. Um, 
for the Sri Lankan government um, active genocidal process against Elam Tamils. So, yeah. It's a pretty fraught uh, situation in Australia with the way our government has responded to um, these situations. Peter Dutton has said that the civil war's over and it's now a safe place for Tamil people to return. How would you describe the situation in Sri Lanka for the Tamil community? Is it a place where Tamil people feel safe? Um Definitely not. So despite the civil war supposedly ending in 2009, um, we've yet to see true accountability for the war crimes committed, particularly in the Muluvaiko massacre, as you mentioned before. Um, so the government has a relentless enforcement of the prevention of terrorism attacks, which essentially permits unjustified arrests for uh, suspected political activists. Um, so under this act, the government and military possess the power to detain individuals in so-called rehabilitation centres for years prior to being charged or without benefit of the trial. So this rehabilitation process is actually overseen by the president, Gautabaya Rajapaksha. He was the defence general during the Mulevaikal massacre. And his current government continues to pardon and denounce war crimes against Tamil during the civil war. Um, I would say that it's not safe for Tamils to be in Sri Lanka. In fact, in the northeast, there's been increased military presence um, with one Sinhalese soldier for every three Tamil civilians. And um, in light of the recent pandemic, um, there was footage released of police dragging Tamil civilians and forcing them into quarantine for allegedly not wearing masks or socially distancing. Um, there's also been uh, torture, murder and disappearances of journalists who speak out against the government's war crimes and their active creation of the genocidal state against Tamils. Sri Lanka also has the second highest number of enforced disappearances in the world, which primarily targets ethnic Tamils. And many of these disappearances occurred, particularly at the end of the war. Um, many people remain uncounted for to this day. On top of that, the military continues to occupy and grab land in Tamil areas. The government also endorses destruction of Tamil monuments to be replaced with Buddhist monuments. And there's also been attacks on the Muslim community, namely the forced cremation of those who died from COVID-19, violating their fundamental human rights, and also most recently a burqa ban. So in the current state of Tamils in Sri Lanka, I'd say it's not the safe place. There's still that active, ongoing genocidal process that continues to this day. And with such an authoritarian government in power, that must affect your hopes for change coming from within Sri Lanka. Yet the international support um, addressing human rights has been quite erratic with different countries uh, giving support at different times, but it's been inconsistent. What's your feeling on the best way forward? So I believe that um, the mobilisation of the international community is integral to put global um, uh, to put added pressure on the global um, community to actually recognise the ongoing genocidal process against Tamils in Sri Lanka. So in terms of the international community, uh, mainly survivors of the war as well as diaspora have mobilised and they won't stay silent on the ongoing genocidal process against Elam Tamils. Um, in Ontario, Canada, they recently passed a bill that recognised Tamil Genocide Week and increases education. 
And in early March of this year, a woman in the UK went on hunger strike for 17 days, demanding that the UN take action against and investigate the war crimes of the Sri Lankan government. We also saw solidarity hunger strikes and protests from the international community. Um, and I think it's also important to acknowledge the self-determination and the strength of Elon Tamils in Sri Lanka as well, which has inspired this international response. So um, the destruction of the Muluvaku monument in Jaffna University earlier this year um, sparked a wave of protests, which ensured that um, the struggle for Tamil rights and remembrance um, would not be erased. So I, I believe that the strength of um, Elon Tamils in Sri Lanka has mobilised the international community and it's hoped that this continuation um, of the international community response will hopefully allow for um, added pressure of the international community and the international government so that something can be done to um, reconcile um, these atrocities. And coming to Australia, uh, the Beowila family has received a significant amount of media attention and it has been, I suppose, become the face of the Tamil asylum seeker in Australia. How many other Tamil asylum seekers are currently in Australian-run detention centres? So, unfortunately, it's really difficult to gauge the exact number of Tamil refugees. This information isn't accessible, and the lack of transparency is indeed telling of the Australian government's drastic and relentless efforts imprison refugees and prevent the general public from knowing the extent of these measures. We do have an estimate that in 2018, 3,000 refugees were living in the community and had their cases rejected. This estimate is likely understated as a lot of refugees came to Australia after 2013, where we saw stricter implementation of law. Usually it can take months to years for them to appeal their case to the IAA, the Immigration Assessment Authority, and 90% of these appeals are not successful. This results in many refugees working as undocumented migrants and hiding in the community. Specifically in the context of the pandemic, where job security is a significant issue, many undocumented refugees would have had to, and continue to, face insurmountable stress, with no access to Medicare, no worker rights, living in fear from being sent back and having no certainty of staying in Australia. So these are all problems derived from the Australian government's hardline and inhumane refugee policy. And the fact that we don't have access to the numbers is really telling of how inhumane their policy is. What makes you the most upset about the situation with the refugees in Australia? Um, I, think, I think the most upsetting part is that the government continues to dehumanise and criminalise Tamil refugees um, and they have this relationship with Sri Lanka as well which very much is founded over this mutual interest to actively oppress Tamil people in Sri Lanka. Um, I don't know if you've also heard about the government supplying um, drones to Sri Lanka as well in guise of a crime fighting purpose. Yes. Yeah, increasing concerns that this surveillance will disproportionately target Tamil populations and also prevent Tamil people from fleeing Sri Lanka, even though Sri Lanka, as I said before, is not a safe place for Tamil, um, Tamil people. So I think the government's response is very poor um, and it's very upsetting in that sense. Um, but I guess there is hope that um, the international community will not stay silent. Um, 
And if we keep mobilizing and keep speaking out against um, the war crimes of Sri Lanka and keep undermining Australia's inhumane refugee policy, hopefully something will come of it. And can you give us details of the rally that you'll be organising on Sunday? Sure. So um, Sunday, May 16th, uh, we have a rally in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, So at 2pm at Sydney Town Hall and 2pm at the State Library of Victoria. Um, The purpose of our rally is to rally against the Sri Lankan government to end their military occupation, to end the the land-grabbing and the state-sponsored single-lease settlements and building of Buddhist temples in the Tamil homeland. We want to recognise Elam Tamil's right to self-determination, end the attack on journalists and human rights activists, release prisoners of war, eliminate and prevent discriminatory policies targeting Muslim communities. And we want to know what happened to the tens of thousands of disappeared persons. And we also want to lobby against the Sri Lankan government um, to get them to discontinue their support and aid in genocide and discontinue their military and naval support. And we don't want Sri Lankan war criminals um, to be given Australian visas and made diplomats. So Sunday, May 16th, 2pm, Sydney Town Hall, or State Library of Victoria, together we will stand in solidarity in a principle of opposition that exposes the ongoing genocidal process against Tamil, Elan Tamils. And are there ways that listeners who can't attend the rally uh, to show support? Um, I guess um, if you can't attend the rally, it'd be great if you could um, head to either our Facebook or Instagram page um, to share, um, I guess, the posts and spread awareness um, of the rally as well. Um, I guess, that's, yeah, that's the main thing, just standing in solidarity, even if you can't be there, um, just spreading the word and um, telling other people about it, yeah. Well, thank you for telling our listeners about it and uh, sharing those important um, messages. That was Dr. Sasia Thavendran from the Tamil Refugee Council speaking about their rally this Sunday, May the 16th at 2pm to commemorate the ongoing genocide in Sri Lanka and protest the Australian government policy on refugees. You can find out more on the Tamil Refugee Council's website and Facebook page. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Algorithm
victims have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio a 5 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're listening to 3CR's Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Ella, and I'm joined in the studio by Maddie Gourlay from the New International Bookshop. Good morning, and welcome to 3CR, Maddie. Thank you so much for having me, Ella, and for having me on the 8 a.m. shift instead of the 7 a.m. shift. Oh, first priority for <laughs> anyone who's willing to come in in person. <laughs> Um, now, I'm keen to hear about some of the events uh, NIBS has coming up, but first up, I wondered if you could just give us a bit of background on the New International Bookstore. So the New International Bookshop is an independent, not-for-profit, radical left bookshop. We're in the heart of Melbourne. We're just in Carlton, in the basement of uh, Trades Hall. We've been around since 96 in that building, and uh, we're a place to have discussions and um, for people come together and talk about left politics. Excellent. Yeah, radical literature goes well with radical radio. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it has a pretty cool origin story, right, Nibs? It um, uh, existed prior to 1996. Yeah, so initially it was the International Bookshop, we're the new one, (laughs) Um, but it used to be on Elizabeth Street and it was uh, founded and run by communists in Melbourne. And that was um, before the 80s, before <laughs> it didn't work out for a lot of people. And so uh, a lot of the um, books and literature that was in NIBS, or well, in, in the international, it was originals and like hardbacks and just like incredible um, original books that you couldn't really get anywhere else and that people would come into um, the bookshop and just hang out and it would be some of the most incredible communists around talking and having a brilliant meeting space. Yeah and I think it still definitely has that feel it's not just a bookstore it feels like a place to Yeah well at the the moment we're sort of trying to make it a place where um, more young people who aren't established um, around Melbourne can come together and find out what they think. It's uh, not just communism anymore. We range from sort of soft left politics where you can be introduced to environmentalism and whatnot to radical left, whereas anarchism and sort of finding your feet and um, figuring out what a sort of alternative world can look like. Excellent. And um, it's a bit of an obligatory question at this point, so I apologise in advance, but um, I am curious to know, how has COVID affected um, the community that come into the NIBS? Um, 
Well, last year we shut down completely. Um, I picked up 40, 50 boxes of books and moved it all to my bedroom. And I ran the shop from my bedroom. Wow. So (laughs) I didn't, I missed the volunteers a lot. Didn't get to see anyone then. My bedroom floor wasn't seen for a year, just covered (laughs) in books. And we were completely online. And one of the only reasons we survived was because the supporters of Nibs contributed money, started buying books online. So for some people, it's the first time using online banking <laughs> just to support us. So it was one of the most incredible um, experiences I've had with how um, intense people felt about Nibs. Yeah, excellent. And did you see a shift in the demographic at all of people? I think a lot more... Um, young people started to be interested, um, especially in terms of figuring out um, why we were in the situation that we're in and why everything seemed to be so awful. And looking at like the politics that were going on, people seemed to be in this sort of um, trapped at home trying to figure out um, what normal and going back to normal would be. So... Um, looking at politics and trying to figure out what sort of world they want after they return to being able to meet up with people again. Yeah, definitely. I think um, the pandemic kind of showed up a lot of the cracks in society, a lot of which kind of stemmed from capitalism. So it makes sense that they'd be drawn to Nibs. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you've uh, started up a book club at Nibs, I believe. Yeah, so... Uh Started it up, but one of the volunteers, Lucy Myers, runs it. So Lucy is finishing her thesis this week, so she couldn't be here to talk. Um, But her thesis is also about the book that we're reading at the moment. So it's Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism. So we meet up every two weeks, and it's quite a diverse group of young and old people, some lecturers, some ex-teachers, some activists and students. Um, I was talking to Lucy um, about what she thinks of the book club and whatnot, and she was sort of describing it as an unstructured uh, discussion of left politics that um, is really hard to find outside of an academic atmosphere. So... It's sort of a communal aspect of ideas that come together where you're sort of stuck in this hour and a half spot together where all you can talk about is this one book. <laughs> and so everyone sort of has to answer the same sort of questions and you get a real diverse interpretation of it. So she sort of has uh, general ideas that she wants to bring to the discussion, but it sort of um, leads off from what other people talk about as well. Excellent. And do you need to have a background in political theory or is it (laughs) open to everyone? So pretty much we meet at 11am at um, Radical Coffee, which is our new cafe that's in um, the courtyard of Trades Hall. Meet there at 11am, then at 11.30 head into Nibs and talk as much as you can and figure out capitalist realism <laughs> <laughs> sounds like fun yeah Alice and I were just saying we feel like everyone we know has recently joined a book club I think they're having a bit of a renaissance <laughs> and um, what other events does Nibs have coming up so we actually have one of our first um, in-person events for this year 
tomorrow night at 6pm. It's the Enlightenment Critique and Public Discourse Lecture by Chris Carlis and is addressing the context of the uh, 18th century Enlightenment period through Kant and Hegel. We also have our first exhibition this Friday, 3.30 till 7.30pm and that is the VHS Log Video Fair. So it's Jim Beckley's VHS exhibition. And you can come and swap tapes, check out VHS-themed zines and art while watching some curated VHS tapes of trailers, wedding videos, classic Aussie commercials, Rage and more. And then on the 25th, we also have a book talk by one of our local supporters, Hans Beer. It's the democratic eco-socialism as a real utopia to an alternative world system. Cool. It sounds like you've got a packed schedule. (laughs) (laughs) And for anyone who wants to come along and attend these events, do they need to book? Can they just show up? They can just show up. Um, It's always um, good to book beforehand, but that's more for my benefit. (laughs) (laughs) So I know um, how many people to expect, how many beers to buy, how much wine to get and all that sort of stuff. But no, just show up and yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming in to join us, Maddie. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, we'll definitely check out some events happening at Nib Scene. Thank you. <laughs> Descended from sacred obligations We still stand by those As we dream in the now Born into where the slope with slippery check history, man, a spin, no mystery, stolen, removed, indigenous, liberties, place power before understanding and humility. On with artillery's hostilities, prey the pawn to the cases. Never realize I need the wrong credit songs with that verse, celebrating strong, celebrating eminent and secret and shadow deep. In the lands, wisdom we do belong. These words are seeds that these can never take from. Our mother's womb prison, always beyond apocalypse is wrong, so don't extinction. Roman restriction, trapped in missions, the colonial system, assimilation, prescription. Spirit never trapped, we always hear glisten ancestors, wisdom forevermore given, yo. Yes, we will always survive. No matter what they do, then we never gon' die. Yes, we will always survive. 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 No matter what they do, then we never gon' die. Yes, we will always survive. Yes, we will always survive. Four, seven, eight, eight. There was nothing but black. There was magic manifested in stacks. To the gun barrel, tried to bring on genocide collapse, but now two hundred plus seasons have elapsed. Conquest didn't work. Caught up in new tracks. Packed with a pen of generations' impact. Put it back to this constant hideous attack. But yet we stand strong in spite of all of that. Quicksand snakes and spiders. Yes, still surviving. Mother Bella Times strong. Masters colliding. The bridge we got up through the sand and that silence. Salam shouts and sirens. We get to the perspiring. Felt that the color through the violence. Your violence, your family, and you was a black hole rising. It's a black hole rising. Yeah, we always survive here. Yes, we will always survive. No matter what they do, then we never gon' die. Yes, we will always survive. Yes, we will always survive. Yes, we will always survive. Yes, 
most people know it's about. No matter what they do, then we never gon' die. Yes, we would love to survive. Yes, we would love to survive. That was a fantastic show today. So many good interviews and such yeah. a diversity as well. Yeah, it was nice having a real mix. And it was um, really helpful to have those first-hand um, discussions about the situation in India, um, yeah, just to hear particularly that emotional uh, observations that um, Alice's guest made about... Dr Nisha. Yeah, Dr yeah Nisha being a citizen here and having to give up your own country's yeah. citizenship but then be away when your family needs you and... Yeah. And and then battling with like, are we second class citizens here? Like, is is that is that what's happening now? And like having that whole community have to, yeah, really come to come to realizations about what they own, they think about their own citizenship here. Yeah, it's a really emotional topic. Yeah, and just such a difficult position to be in um, when you're trying to provide support and help, but you're also so physically removed from the situation mm-hmm. and it would be more so possibly if you're a doctor because you want to be helping in that capacity that you've been trained for yeah especially when so much of it's so preventable in terms of yeah providing oxygen providing vaccines um. mm-hmm. uh, so well thanks to all our guests uh on wednesday breakfast this week and uh thank you all for listening in I'll make another uh, reminder for you that there has been a positive case of COVID in Victoria and to check the Victorian government's Department of Health and Human Services website for exposure sites. Um, They're sort of right around Melbourne, Epping, Melbourne, uh, Docklands, Craven, Altona. So get on there and check uh, your urge to self-isolate if you visited a tier one site. And of course, all the normal COVID reminders apply. Wash your hands regularly, wear a mask when uh, social distancing isn't possible and to try to stay 1.5 metres distance between people wherever possible. So we'll see everyone next week. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace, a treaty means equality, and a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. 
Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.